This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It is Friday, September 10th. On this episode, we're going to focus on some potential buy low targets. These would be players acquired via offseason trades for the most part. Some guys that have really had disappointing 2021 seasons. We'll try to figure out why that has happened and what the future might hold for this group of players. We're also going to dig into how future Hall of Famers might look a lot different than current Hall of Famers and get into some of the things related to uh, Cooperstown. And obviously, we had Derek Jeter and Larry Walker have their induction on Wednesday. So everyone's thinking about the Hall of Fame. We'll dig into that and a little bit about Max Scherzer as he approaches the 3,000 strikeout milestone. Uh, but Keith, let's start with uh, some buy low targets. Glaber Torres, who is in the unfortunate position of being the Yankees shortstop, and anytime Glaber Torres makes a mistake, it's like he made three errors at once, and <laughs> the defense is grading out poorly. Like He is struggling at shortstop right now. Yeah, which is surprising. That's not who he was. Um, certainly not what he was supposed to be when he was coming up as a prospect, and I don't think... I think, think he's looked quite a bit worse this year than even than he did in his first couple of years in the big leagues. Which is disappointing because he's also struggled to hit. This is the first time as a big leaguer that Glaber Torres has been a below average offensive contributor in 89 WRC plus entering play on Thursday. You go back even to the shortened season, the power has been gone. We've talked about it, I think, at least once on this show earlier in the season. It just hasn't come back. The plate skills are still fine, but even when you account for 2019 being the year of the rabbit ball and, and that being what almost certainly is a career best in home runs, a 38 home run season for Glaber, this much of a power outage is also a surprise. And the more I look at him, the more I wonder if he has a long-term future with the Yankees. He might actually be the kind of guy they would be interested in trading away during the offseason. But if you were you know, calling the shots in a different front office, is he high on your priority list of younger players that you could actually go out and get. Yeah, I would absolutely target him given one, what he was as a, pro- you know, how highly rated he was as a prospect, how well he performed the first couple of years. Yeah, the 38 home run season, it looked like an outlier then. I'm going to say I think it was probably still an outlier um, and probably would always be. The one question I have on Gleiber, it's just when you see a guy's power evaporate like that, Let's say he was really more his true talent level was probably in the 20 home run range. He's not been close to that. He has nine home runs total since the start of the shortened 2020 season. The one thing I always wonder is, is there some kind of hidden injury? You know, often it's hand, wrist, you know, thumb, something like that, where the grip, the strength of the grip is compromised. Or, uh, you know, has there been some kind of maybe shoulder injury or something that has caused the player to alter his swing? If that's true in Gliber's case, I don't think we'd know about it. He's had minor injuries. He had the thumb injury this year. He was hit by a pitch on his elbow in 2020. But none of those things seem to be kind of chronic or or long-term. And so I don't see the obvious explanation, which is not great. I would feel better. I still think he's a good buy-low candidate. I would feel better about it if I could also say, yeah, I think he's going to get another year past the wrist injury the way Jonathan India did, right? 
2019 production in the minors. He was really compromised by a hand or wrist injury he didn't tell the team about. He was better at the alternate site last year. We didn't see him. He comes out this year. Obviously, he's fine. So is that the case with Gliber? I don't know. I don't think so. But I would at least keep it in the back of my mind also if I were looking to acquire him. If you were in that position, would you be planning to move him off shortstop? A minus 10 defensive run saved this year, minus 9 even in the shortened season. So there's definitely an issue that needs to be fixed there. But is it fixable, maybe akin to early career Marcus Simeon, who became a gold glover uh, kind of against a, a lot of odds, I think, just based on what we were seeing from him earlier in his career? Like, Is there that type of transformation in Torres just based on his raw athletic ability? Yeah, he's not much of a runner. Um, which definitely hurts matters. He's always been a below average runner, but his hands always worked fine. And he, uh, I thought, I saw him, first time I saw him, I think he was 18. He seemed to have really good instincts. I thought there was plenty there for him to be at least an average shortstop. You know, when he did play second base earlier in his career, he wasn't very good there either. So I don't know if this is a function of getting him to a different coaching staff, getting him maybe to a different system. There are some teams... You know, Tampa Bay doesn't necessarily need him now. They have this pretty good shortstop anyway. But getting him to some teams that, because of the way they position players, they seem to get guys who are just adequate at shortstop, who end up playing better at shortstop than you'd expect. It it might be more a question of getting him to a different system rather than strictly getting him to another position. Although, if you're asking me, like, where do I – do I think he plays most of the, the majority of games the rest of his career at shortstop or at another position? I'd say another position. Yeah, I think that seems like the the course we're on at this point. And we've talked about this before. Many quality teams out there have their long-term shortstop already. So there's probably only eight or so teams that would acquire him and need to play him at shortstop. So that could also dictate the path. I want to talk about Gavin Lux for a little bit. He's uh, among a few players that have spent time at AAA, unexpectedly to me at least. Uh, I didn't see that coming at all. I thought when Corey Seager went down earlier this season, that was going to be the opportunity for Lux to really secure his place as a regular and kind of push you know, Chris Taylor further out of the mix for, for infield playing time, right? Because the way everything's set up with Lux, it was always like, well, they can sit him against lefties because they've got so much depth. That's fine. He's a big side platoon guy. Uh, he didn't have the season that I was expecting. The power hasn't been there at all. Even down at AAA, the numbers are not anywhere close to the level we saw two years ago when he just tore apart AAA. What's going on with Gavin Lux? I mean, there's not, it's not hopeless at all because the underlying numbers are still encouraging, right? The exit velocity still looks solid. The K rate's actually better this year than it has been during his previous times in the big league. And he's walking a little more than ever too. Is this a great window if you're, another team to swoop in and possibly get at least a middle-of-the-order sort of impact bat, even if you don't know where exactly you're going to play Gavin Lux in the long run. It's funny. The Dodgers, I think, are one of those teams that if they think there's something to be salvaged with Gavin Lux, then they're probably not going to be very eager to give him away. If the Dodgers are saying, okay, we'll talk about Gavin Lux, I'd be concerned. I would absolutely stop and think, what do they know that we don't know? Is there something missing here? Because that, like I said, because I don't, I don't think they, they give up players with talent. But if they're looking at Lux and willing to sell what we think is sell low on him, that would probably make me a bit concerned. You know, I think one of Lux's problems, some of this just appears to be just bad luck on balls in play. Um, a lot of it is that there's just a lot of 
medium quality contact and not enough of the hard contact that we're expecting. I don't think he's a power guy. I don't think he's ever really going to be a big power guy, but I do think he could be a high doubles guy, um, you know, post inadequate, more than adequate slugging percentage, especially for a middle infielder, because he just hits the ball hard a lot. And that translates to a lot of extra base hits and enough home runs. But I don't think he was ever, I never thought he would be a 25 to 30 home run guy. I thought he'd be a guy who would hit, hit for some extra base power, run, play good defense, have a good approach at the plate. I mean, I thought he was a top 10 prospect in baseball. And I think everything that made him a top 10 prospect in baseball is still intact. I don't think there's anything actually wrong. I don't think we've learned, oh, wait a minute, this guy is unable to do thing X. It's not like he's gotten to the majors and there's one particular pitch that he just absolutely cannot hit. That's really not the case. He's kind of just not been very good against all pitching. And I tend to ascribe that to the fact, and we've talked about this before, the gap between them, even AAA and the majors seems to be as large as it's ever been. And so a lot of guys, Jared Kalanick, another example, a lot of guys are just struggling the first, even second time around. I wouldn't give up on them, especially in the case of, you know, Lux is even to me a little bit of a better example than Torres, where Torres is just imploded and we don't really have any kind of explanation. Whereas in Lux's case, it's just, hey, hitting big league pitching is hard and he's not showing one particular glaring weakness. He's still making good enough contact. We just need to see more of that translated to harder contact. Maybe that comes as he gets a little bit older, gets a little stronger. Maybe that just comes with more experience. But I think the underlying data that we have, as well as the scouting reports, all point towards Lux still becoming at least a well above average regular. Do you see him staying in the infield? Do you see him move into an outfield corner? He's absolutely, he's a shortstop for me. I would let him play shortstop. I think he will eventually be a very good shortstop. But, you know, the one thing is, and we're going to talk about some other players like this too, you got to play regularly. And that's, I think, been a problem for a lot of, um, uh, for a lot of young players who seem to have disappointed is if they can't get regular playing time, sometimes it's hard, right? You're just trying, team's trying to win. We can't just put you in the lineup every day if you're not producing. Well, you may not produce unless you get to play every day and you end up in this vicious cycle where the players don't quite develop as you hoped slash need them to um, because they're not getting the regular playing time that you would have hoped. Yeah, and I think kind of looking ahead to next year, I mean, Trey Turner is still going to be there since they traded for him. They can play Turner at short, and then maybe Lux is kind of back to where he was entering this season where he's battling for that playing time at second base, but that assumes that Corey Seager moves on in free agency. Uh, so I think there's still a lot to be determined with, with just how the playing time outlook is going to shape up for Lux going the next season. Maybe the trade will happen, but that he wasn't a part of the deal that got them Turner and Scherzer tells me that the Dodgers still do probably believe in what he's going to be, at least as a hitter, even if they don't know where exactly he fits in for them defensively. I like that you want to play him at shortstop, though. I think that bodes really well for his overall long-term future. Um, let's talk about Dominic Smith for a moment. Turned 26 back in June, still under club, club control uh, through the 2024 season. And the Mets are sort of built for the universal DH already. I mean, a, a Pete Alonso, <laughs> Dominic Smith tandem, that's a first base DH tandem. That's not a first base left field tandem. So it's always been kind of unfair to me that Smith has had to play in the outfield because I don't think he's an outfielder. Nope. Projections for next year are probably going to be pretty light. Like a 250, 320, 415 rest of season line is what he has right now. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's what the 2022 projections look like. And that seems light because what we saw from him in the shortened season and even in 2019, that was a pretty big step forward offensively. I think the one thing that I would caution people against is in 2020, he had a 13% barrel rate. 
There's nothing in his profile in these other big league seasons that say that he's that kind of player. That's like 25 to 30 home run power. But I think he's a much better hitter than we're seeing here in 2021. Oh, he absolutely is. And he talk about another guy who doesn't get to play regularly. And therefore, he uh, he's he's regressed. And if you look also, the guy's not hitting right handed pitching. He's a left handed hitter. That doesn't make any sense. That is not a thing. The left handed hitter who can't hit right handed pitching is where there. I could think of one or two exceptions. That's pretty rare. And also that's counter to the whole rest of his professional career. I think there are a couple of things going on here. One is he doesn't play regularly because of Pete Alonso. That's fine. Pete Alonso also deserves to play regularly. They don't have spots for both guys. Two, Dom Smith shouldn't be playing the outfield. He's actually a really good defensive first baseman, but you can't, you're not going to put Alonso in the outfield, can't bench Alonso, and therefore the, Dom Smith has one position he can play, and it's not there. It's not available for him. Uh, and I wonder if at some point he does need the change of scenery. If they're not going to let him play every day, and if they, or, you know, is did they miss their window with Smith? I think Smith goes somewhere else and is really good. We've seen that kind of with Ahmed Rosario, who's a pretty similar path, and Rosario has started to play extremely well now that he's not in New York and he's getting to play every day. I don't think those two people, those two players, are the same type of human. And Smith has had more success in New York than Rosario ever did. But if there's no universal DH coming next year, Smith probably just needs to be on another team. And there are going to be, there are never a ton of teams looking for first baseman. There will be enough teams looking for first baseman or DH candidates that Smith could find a home and the Mets could probably get some value for him, even if it's not maybe what they would have gotten last winter. It's also pretty interesting to me looking at the career home road splits. Dominic Smith has a 91 WRC plus at City Field. He's got a 116 WRC plus everywhere else. That's a pretty big difference. I know City Field is playing in a pretty strange way. It's something Eno's brought up a few times that I don't know if the if the organization even understands like why things are happening the way that it is, but it definitely seems to be working against Dominic Smith in in some way because those are those are pretty steep splits. You don't usually see guys mm-hmm. hitting that much better on the road. You know, if they play in an extreme pitcher's park, but City Field is not an extreme pitcher's park. So it's surprising. You know, I also note too, he's been even worse as the year's gone on because he's just playing less. And it's again, that vicious cycle, right? You don't get to play often. We're picking spots for you, but it's less about when you need to play and it's more about giving someone else a day off. And so the less Smith plays, the worse he seems to hit. And I think it's just uh, rolling on itself and feeding on itself to the point where you just, you never know. These these are humans, and you never know exactly, say, what's going on in their minds. But I could certainly imagine a scenario where Smith is just exasperated. And it's not like he's blaming – you can't blame anyone for saying, well, Alonso needs to play. Of course he does. But I'm sure Smith is thinking, I've done everything that's been asked of me, and I still can't get regular playing time. Um, or I'm being asked to play completely out of position. Uh, you know, What else do I need to do? Yeah, I would completely agree with that, but definitely looks like a bounce back player for me looking ahead to 2022, especially if he gets out of New York. I want to talk about Victor Robles for a moment because I always want to talk about Victor Robles. He's been a below replacement level player going back through the shortened season. There was some power in 2019. There was speed. And I think the thing that I always believed with Robles that was going to carry his playing time and give him a lot of chances to figure everything out at the plate was his defense, but that's even slipped a little bit too. We did see some improvement with the strikeout rate and the walk rate this year, but he's down at AAA right now, which is something I didn't expect to see at all, especially with the Nats you know, trading players away at the deadline. Doesn't turn 25 until May, you know, like Dominic Smith, 
under club control through 2024. But this, to me, is a lot like the Ahmed Rosario scenario, a highly coveted prospect, got to the big leagues pretty young, had a pretty bumpy path those first few years. I wonder if he gets back on track at all, or if he does, if it even happens with the Nats. Well, the knock on Robles, even when he was a prospect, was does he hit the ball hard enough, consistently enough to be a productive everyday player in the big leagues. The speed was obviously there. He's had a good eye. He, I think he's a good going to end up a good defensive center fielder. It'd be kind of shocking if he didn't, but he doesn't hit the ball hard. He doesn't barrel the ball much. He does not have good uh, typical exit velocities. His peak exit velocities obviously are fine. That's not really the most important things. Where is he typically sitting? And he hits a lot of balls, just not very hard. His hard hit rate is extremely low. I mean, across the board, this is a guy who's not hitting the ball hard enough. Makes me wonder, is he one of those swing change type guys? If he went to the Giants or the Dodgers, one of these organizations that's had some pretty good success with altering swings to get more or better quality contact, does he see a significant improvement? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious. I also don't see any reason for the Nationals to give up on him. They need to look at what those other organizations are doing and say, how do we do that with Robles? He's a keeper at this point. They're in a situation where they're not trading away a player like him. I guess unless you were getting a comparably young, uh, limited service time player who they liked more. But to me, this seems to be a uh, perfect scenario where they need to work with him. Maybe it's this offseason. Maybe they have him go to some outside coach or outside group and say, hey, we need this guy needs swing help. How do we get him there? Even with the concerns going back to his time as a prospect, do you think there is something here development-wise with the Nats where you had this problem with Carter Keboom too. Carter Keboom doesn't hit the ball very hard, harder than Robles. Everyone hits the ball harder than Victor Robles for the most part. But for a corner infielder especially, you don't look at Carter Keboom and go, yeah, that guy's definitely sticking at third base. He's going to hit enough to keep that job. I mean, I think you probably have some concerns maybe about Luis Garcia and his development as a hitter, even though there's probably no question about what he's going to do defensively up the middle. So is this just a bigger problem that the Nats need to address? I would say of those three guys, looking back kind of at my own evaluations, Robles had lots of other things going for him. He had the athleticism, he had the speed, he had the defense. And I think he just performed better in general. Luis Garcia's main attribute as a prospect was that he was young. And I'm kind of over those guys. I mean, that was Andres Jimenez too. Teams have realized that they can juke the stats basically by taking certain prospects, particularly prospects who just make contact, but it can be low quality contact. They make enough contact, you can push them up the system. And other teams that rely very heavily on analytical models will see, oh, he performed, he's really young for his level. And almost any performance, when you're 18, 19 in double A, almost any performance is going to read as adequate if you're that much younger than your competition. But that sort of ignores the other half. What's the scouting report? What does this guy project to do as he gets older? Well, those are guys who didn't have projection, Jimenez and Garcia. You know, I remember talking to a scout who saw Garcia. Um, I'd just seen Garcia at the Futures game. We were talking about him several years ago. And he's, his the scout's response was, what, what am I missing here? What is the tool here? There's no plus tool anywhere there. He's not going to have power. He's not that much of a hitter. He's Perfectly capable middle infielder. He might have a very long career in the big leagues, but where is the upside? And Kivum was kind of the other 
side of a similar coin where it was people thought he could really hit, but he couldn't do anything else. He didn't have power. He didn't have great plate discipline. He was a very poor defensive shortstop, who I think has not been great when tried at second or third, although i give him a chance, let him play one of those positions for a longer time before we dismiss him. Robles was just a different kind of player. And I think wonder if the uh, in the case of the other two, where Garcia, I don't think ever made my top 100s, and Kibun was on the towards the back. Were those guys just more highly rated because they were towards the top of mediocre system as opposed to Robles, who was just really talented and the expected increase in the quality of his contact just never happened. You think, well, he's only 20. He's going to get the ball harder. He's going to get older. He's going to get stronger. And that hasn't happened. And I'll take, I'll wear that one. That's an evaluation failure on my end. The projected, projected projection never came to pass well and i think that always gets to a why question you know I, I, you see blue ink on a stat cast page especially early in a player's career and i think a lot of people mm-hmm. are going to be said they're going to say no this isn't going to work this doesn't have like this player is never going to hit and i think that's right. that's always dangerous because just because you see that blue ink you might see like billy hamilton exit velocities victor robles doesn't have billy hamilton's body like if you look at robles you're like okay he should hit the ball harder at least just from the mm-hmm. a simple build standpoint there's proof of concept with the home runs from 2019 that he can do a little something with power. So that comes down to me. It's more of like a barrel control sort of issue, right? It's more of like a hit tool related function of, of power being missing than a strength issue. So yeah, it comes down to swing mechanics and a tweak like that. So I, I think a, a change of scenery needs to happen or would be a better, it would make me more of a believer in him bouncing back in 2022 it's impossible for it to happen with the Nats though because guys have their own hitting coaches they have their own systems that they they go through in the offseason guys although he's going to be 25 next year guys do get better at that age it's not impossible obviously we think of that as like not old in the sense of a player's career but certainly by that point these guys usually are who we think they are but not always and I mean just go to go back to the Dodgers you mentioned Chris Taylor earlier Max Muncy Will Smith was probably about 25 23 or 24 when they did they really changed his swing he was making better quality contact just wasn't having the power but there were a lot there there are a lot of examples of these players of players 25 and older making some kind of substantial change usually it's swing path but it doesn't have to be swing path that changes their entire outlook as players and i think in this case um you know, Robles may need to get stronger too. And I don't mean like bulking up. I mean, it may be an issue of hand, wrist, forearm strength, and maybe he doesn't have that. But you've got, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the Nationals front office people too. You have to exhaust all possibilities. And they're not at that point yet. I'm sure they're not at that point because we haven't seen any kind of significant changes to Robles at this point. Now that he's been sent down, I am sure they've already had these conversations. Okay, what do we do here? Yeah, maybe that's part of why they sent him down. They want him to work on some bigger changes. Hard to work on that against top-level pitching, too. But uh, interesting story nonetheless, just because it looked like he was on the right track just two years ago, and here he is at AAA in the end of 2021. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing 
ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Let's get to some pitching. Chris Paddock. And Chris Paddock is important because the Padres have had so much go wrong with their pitching. His rookie season was incredible. 333 ERA, a .98 whip, more than a strikeout per inning. He's had a home run issue the entire time he's been in the big leagues. But he's got good mm-hmm. control. And nothing he's done since that rookie season has looked nearly as good I think just based on need, it seems unlikely that the Padres would move him during the offseason. But can we ever get back to 2019 Chris Paddock? Or is the up and down 2020 and 2021 version just what we're stuck with for the foreseeable future? Paddock's problem, and I liked Paddock as a prospect. I still think there's a big league starter there. His problem has always been he does not have a good breaking ball. He has a wipeout changeup. Uh, and he's got plenty of fastball velocity, but it's not a particularly elite fastball in terms of secondary characteristics, which basically makes him a two-pitch guy, particularly against right-handed batters. He does not have a breaking pitch to get right-handed batters off of his fastball. Now, he can get a lot of them out with changeups. He'll go with the right-right changeup. He'll double up on the right-right changeups. It's not like he's helpless in this, those situations. However, he needs something else, something particularly to get, because he's, he's giving up a lot of those home runs, two-thirds of his homers this year, just about two-thirds of his homers last year. They're coming on the fastball. He's getting beat on his fastball. So he needs something else to get hitters away from the, from sitting on the fastball. He's also throwing his fastball about three out of every five pitches, and maybe he'd be better off just throwing it less often. But then he has to have something else to go to in those situations. They tried a cutter with him briefly last year. It wasn't very effective, but also he also barely threw it. I don't know if they shelved that for any particular reason this year. Maybe that's not the answer, but my God, he needs something else. You can be an effective big league starter with a mediocre breaking ball. Cole Hamels might go to the Hall of Fame, and that was basically his resume. Elite change up, threw a ton of strikes. Curveball was good enough, and that's kind of what I think Paddock's um, Paddock needs to follow that path. I don't want to say it's his upside because that's a, that's not fair, but that needs to be the model here. And if that's getting the curveball to be good enough, it's probably not going to happen at this point. Is it switching him to a different type of breaking pitch, to a slider, to a cutter, anything to try to get him off of that, to try to get hitters from sitting on his four-seamer? Yeah, it's interesting. The curveball that he's been working in a little bit this year is getting good results. 167 batting average against 167 slugging against the only throwing it about 12% of the time because he barely throws it. Yeah, right? I mean, to me, that is absolutely the case. And it's not the pitch isn't any different. If you watch, it's the same breaking ball he's always had. That is to me, that's absolutely a fluke of a tiny sample size. And if you search to throw it more, it's going to get hit more. Yeah. In the past, that's definitely been a pitch that opposing hitters have done damage on. So We'll see if he's able to figure it out. But there's some pretty big pitching development questions on the horizon in San Diego. 
Let's talk about Kyle Hendricks for a moment. A bit different than the other names here. Most of these guys are early to mid-20s. Hendricks, easily the oldest player that we're talking about so far today. Always seems to outperform his ERA estimators. Does it with what is not typical big league starter stuff. Of course, the command is good. Still has two years left on a four-year, $55 million deal that he signed with the Cubs as a vesting option for 2024. The Cubs strike me as a team that would love to unload more cash if they could. This poor small market Chicago Cubs feel so bad for them. I wonder if there's actually going to be anyone interested, though, because we're seeing Hendricks post the lowest strikeout rate of his career. 6.6 Ks per nine, if you like that. 16.9% if you like K percentage. Lowest since his rookie season. And a career worst home run rate, too, which in Wrigley, where usually when the wind is blowing in, it plays very pitcher-friendly, is a concern. So... Where are you at with Kyle Hendricks? Do you think he makes sense for a team that needs innings, especially looking ahead to the offseason? I do, because it seems like the stuff is not that he was ever a stuff guy, but it does seem like the stuff is still there, is intact. Um, Obviously, he still throws plenty of strikes. So, yeah, would I take a shot at him? Absolutely. Would I take a shot at him and be willing to take on his entire contract? No, probably not. I would want the Cubs to um, – and it's not that I don't think he can be better. Of course, I th- I, I'm saying I take a shot at him. I think he can be better. I, I always wonder, too, at some point, you know, how, is Hendricks another guy who's just being hurt by – obviously, the baseballs are still flying. Right? We're seeing crazy home run totals this year um, to the point where some, oh, somebody else got to 40 homers. Okay. Like, I'm, it doesn't even register with me this year. So you know, is Hendricks just another victim of that? And if the balls change next year – does that mean he goes back more to being the typical Kyle Hendricks? Because typically it's a skill set you'd expect to last really well into his mid-30s. So I'd be willing to take that shot. I just, you know, if you're an acquiring team, you have some leverage. You'd say, we'll take some of that contract, take half that contract, but we won't take the whole contract. And if those poor uh, you know, alms-seeking rickets just so badly need to save some money so they can donate it to political campaigns instead of putting it into the team... I mean, maybe somebody will help them out. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they'll get lucky. The, it's interesting. You didn't have Salvador Perez hitting 42 home runs? I did not. Somebody asked me on Twitter the other day if he has a chance at the Hall of Fame. I, I was. I had to stop and <laughs> look because I was like, wait, did I, did I miss something? Like, yeah, he's having a wonderful season, obviously. But did I miss something in his career what no he does not have any chance at the hall of fame nor nor should he no i mean a career 302 obp like that's uh almost an automatic like i don't think that's a hall of fame hitter right there a lot of gold gloves got a world series nice career an all-time great royal can we just say so-and-so had a great career without having to make it a hall of fame debate like it's just some it's this grave insult you said he wasn't a hall of famer yeah most guys aren't suck it up yeah Really good player, fun player, but I, I didn't see him yeah. hitting 40 plus home runs in a season ever. No. So wrong about no. him this year. I mean, I didn't. Good for him. Who could have seen that coming? It's impossible. I, I would love to know who saw that coming, actually. I would love to have a conversation about baseball with anyone who actually saw 40 plus home runs coming from Salvador Perez this year. Uh, one more pitcher I want to get to, a guy that's already been traded. I was really stunned that they actually made this trade. Jesus Lazardo, who, of course, was sent to Miami in the Starling Marte trade. I guess I was just surprised because I looked at the A's and the way that organization is built right now and trading away a controllable young starter, who I think still has quite a bit of ceiling, 
that just didn't make sense to me. Of all the things they could have done to upgrade their roster, I think Starling Marte made sense for them. I just didn't think mm-hmm. trading away several years of Jesus Lazardo was part of the way that was going to happen. He's starting to show some signs of turning things around in Miami. It's really too early to look at him and go, totally different guy now. But because he's got so many pitches, because he's got velo from the left side, that alone, I thought, made him a great buy low sort of target. I think the Marlins were really smart to get in on him when the opportunity was there. I agree. I feel like you and I may have even talked about this at the time of the trade, but it did seem like maybe Oakland was just tired of the the injuries and the fact that Luzardo is generally very good when healthy, but insufficiently frequently healthy. He's just that's probably who he's always going to be. He's never really had a full season. I think he's since really you'd have to go back to his junior year of high school to find a full season of his. Now, 2020 was his interruption to the 2020 season was COVID related. So that's different. But in pretty much every other season, he's had some kind of physical reason why he couldn't pitch a full complement of innings, make a full complement of starts, whatever it is. And, you know, the Marlins are in a situation where they can say, you know, Oakland's trying to win. So, they're in a position where they need some more reliability, whereas the Marlins are probably in a better position to say, ah, we'll take a shot at that. We see the upside. We're willing to roll the dice on that. The Marlins, you and I feel like this is becoming tired for you and I to keep talking about this. Marlins are on a pretty good path here. They're going to get good, I think, pretty soon. Um, Edward Cabrera looks great. Trevor Rogers is probably Sarah Langs and I talked about on the podcast this week. Trevor Rogers would be the NL Rookie Pitcher of the Year if such an award existed. I think Jonathan India is clearly the Rookie of the Year in the National League. I'm comfortable with that. I would vote for him, but Rogers would probably be second for me. I like where the Marlins are going. It may t- the bats may be a year or two behind the arms, but it's looking pretty promising. And Lazardo just adds to that too. And I'm looking at the underlying numbers. The Marlins have increased the use of the curveball. For Lizardo so far. I don't know if that's just game planning for specific matchups. That's why I think it's too early to say, well, this is this is the big adjustment that they've made. It's one of those things that kind of stands out if you look at the, the pitch percentage charts over the last few weeks. Uh, throwing fewer fastballs is almost kind of bizarre for a guy that I think actually has a pretty good fastball. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. the, the thing that makes Lizardo so interesting, though, is that arsenal. It's so deep, so many different ways he can attack hitters. And being in Miami, it's such a forgiving park, too. I mean, not that Oakland wasn't. It's obviously a pitcher-friendly yeah, environment, Yeah, I would argue too. Oakland was even more so. Yeah, but he landed another really good spot for pitching development. So still optimistic about his future and really excited the Marlins were able to get him as part of that core. Can I just add one thought on Lizardo, too? The one thing that I thought was interesting this year was he does have a good fastball. I would have graded out by velocity and just how he, pl- how he commands it. Thought it was going to play as a really good fastball, too. It didn't this year. Would be something to watch going forward. It was just less effective this year. Is that sample size? Is that location? Was he not physically 100%? There was a little bit of a command thing. That's not even raising it as sort of an objection or cause for concern. But hey, if you're a Marlins fan, I'm sure there are three of you out there. If you're in the front office, this is the thing I would be most looking at is, okay, well, that pitch was a problem for him in the first four months of the season. Is there something we need to change or was it just a flip? Right. And even if it is still a problem, because the arsenal is so deep, he's, he's, got, three he's other, got ways to right? get around it. Yeah. He can be a 20, 25% fastball guy and just throw the secondaries a lot more. Agreed. 
So I want to talk to you about how future Hall of Famers might look a lot different. I think I started thinking about this earlier today. I was reading a, a piece that Britt Drole and Maria Torres wrote about Max Scherzer as he approaches 3,000 strikeouts. And and for me, Scherzer is a, a future Hall of Famer. I don't know if we necessarily need to debate that. I don't think there's much of a, a debate to be had there. Yeah. Can, can we just state that as a given? Yeah. He's a Hall of Famer. We, we're putting Max Scherzer in the Hall of Fame, but... Okay, done. So many of the the milestones that players used to reach obviously are out of reach now because of the way the game has changed. Players, the part of the the downside of giffy goodness from pitching ninja and the rest of baseball Twitter is that guys are blowing out their arms. So pitchers especially are just not going to hit the old pitching milestones. That's fine. Like I just think it means we have to change what we're looking for in future Hall of Fame pitchers. I mean, I think Clayton Kershaw, Shuin also, Zach Greinke probably getting into. There's a few guys that are pretty obviously Hall of Famers, but I think it's harder to identify young starting pitchers who are on a Hall of Fame trajectory than it is to identify young position players who are. Like the young position players, it's pretty easy to look at Tatis and Acuna and Juan Soto and kind of see how they're laying the groundwork for that type of career. Obviously too early to say, yeah, they're definitely getting there. But I just think comparatively speaking, you can't look as easily at the pool of young pitchers and identify the guys who are going to have that sort of longevity and that amazing peak that it takes to even put yourself in the conversation. Yeah, well, the problem is that it's the durability question, right? The guys who who knew Justin Verlander, who is at 3,000 strikeouts and is clearly going to the Hall of Fame, who knew that he would be the one, right? He would was going to be the guy to get to, to to pitch well. He didn't suffer the major injury until he was past 35. I think he was 37 or so. Who knew he was going to be that guy? I didn't know that. I definitely, I mean, would I have said I thought Justin Verlander would be durable? Sure. Would I have said he is going to be the one or one of the only ones? You know, why not Clayton Kershaw? Clayton Kershaw started to break down in his early 30s. He's still going to go to the Hall of Fame, but it's going to be a different resume maybe than we expected. You know, Madison Bumgarner, as great as he was in his 20s, is 31 now, is still not even at 2,000 strikeouts, and I would not have a particularly great forecast for the rest of his career. Um, And I just think we have too hard of a time projecting who's going to stay healthy and effective as a pitcher. We have a hard time doing that in the very short term, but trying to project that out 10, 15, 20 years, 15 years, let's say, is probably what you need for a Hall of Fame starter. We're just not good at that. I, I don't think we know. I look at these guys and I look at Max Scherzer and I remember seeing Max Scherzer. We had a serious concern still with the Blue Jays when he was drafted. We had serious concerns about the health of his shoulder coming out of college. I remember when he was in the Arizona system and struggling at one point. He had a real delivery issue and it was a question of could he even start with a delivery like that? And I mean, still, his delivery is still not picture perfect and yet he has stayed really incredibly healthy for a very long time. I certainly wouldn't have forecasted that for them. Even when I was at my highest on Scherzer, I wouldn't have predicted that. And I think that's part of the problem of identifying those guys so early. And it may mean we have to change the criteria we use at some point for what does make a Hall of Fame pitcher. Yeah, and I kind of wonder if Bumgarner is exactly the type of pitcher you have to look at now and, and think, do we have to recalibrate? Do we have to look at a guy and say that that six or seven year peak is the primary thing we're looking for in pitchers, especially? I know that's part of the the Jay Jaffe Jaws system, looking at that peak and comparing that to previous Hall of Famers peaks. And I really like that as a, a model to kind of get a feel for how players across different eras do actually compare. But 
if you look at what Bumgarner did for the better part of a decade, you'd be more inclined to say he belongs in than out. But then when you take a look at his overall body of work and project a likely reduced amount of workload compared to current Hall of Famers, he falls short. Like the, the resume doesn't hold up because of bulk. But if, in terms of peak, it's really good. I would start to argue that maybe he does actually belong in the Hall of Fame someday. Uh, I'd have a hard time with that, but I'm open to the argument. Right, that we're just going to have to change what that what it means to be a Hall of Fame starter, or we're going to have no pitchers. That is the risk. He's will as it is. We've already seen a pretty strong bias in the voting against more modern pitchers because we were trying to hold them to completely out of date uh, standards. No one's getting three hundred wins anymore. We shouldn't care about pitcher wins in the first place, but no one's getting there anymore because we just don't pitch guys like that anymore. They don't make as many starts. They don't pitch as deep into games. And they don't stay healthy for long enough. And okay, that's just the natural evolution of the game. The Hall of Fame standards do need to evolve in tandem. What I struggle with is what do they need to look like now? I mean, I guess the the simple answer is he needs to be better than his peers, right? We should be taking the top whatever it is, 5% of pitchers. And then we just have to define what that means. But it's how do we skim off the top when it's not even entirely clear how we should be ranking these guys? Do we rank someone higher who maybe wasn't as effective on a per inning basis or per batter basis, but threw a lot more innings than anybody else did? And this was the Roy Halladay resume uh, more than anything was that he was done kind of early, but was not just very effective at his peak, but pitched more than anybody else did at his peak. And that would be, I think, a huge argument for Kershaw, not just the awards he won, but he was pitching a lot at his peak. And that's probably why he was less has become less effective and more likely to break in his 30s. Yeah, and I wonder if uh, Verlander's path, and I, I would agree with you, you said earlier, Verlander's a Hall of Famer. I think he is, too. I thought Verlander might have been done back in 2013 and 2014 as far as being a, an effective frontline sort of starter. That was back when he had that, that core muscle injury and, and really pitched through it and just was not the same guy that he was earlier in his career. But his mm-hmm. late career resurgence, I mean, the time at the end of his run with the Tigers and, of course, what he's done in Houston, that yep. that was huge for him. Without that, he was not a Hall of Famer. He was a, a great Tiger, a, a great pitcher for his era, but not a guy that we'd be talking about in this light. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. And maybe that's what it is. Does it become that the, it's the guys who have the real strong finishes who remake themselves as pitchers at some point later in their careers? We will see. I don't know who they'll be, but some some guy, some pitcher who we know is a power pitcher will remake himself as more of a command guy and have a second wind in his 30s. And I don't know who that'll be. I'll be very curious to see who it'll be, but I wouldn't even... like Any guess would be... Just a guess, right? I don't think we know the characteristics that's particularly set those guys apart, especially when so much just comes down to health. We just don't know who's going to physically hold up enough to not just maintain enough velocity or maintain enough stuff, but then to also be able to execute those kinds of changes to a delivery or to an approach or to add a pitch later in their careers. And then the the problem case, I think, is someone like Jacob deGrom, who has a, a partial tear of the UCL that has apparently healed i mean that, that's obviously possible but just a, a very odd sure. sort of thing to be talking about in what did September. they reiki him like come on I, I, can you believe anything that comes from that organization on this topic at this point mm-hmm. you know i don't mean to pick on the mets their fans do that plenty anyway but come on does anyone believe that that's true at this point as soon as i heard that i was like okay it's, it, I, I like sandy alderson i do i've talked to him many times 
But in addition to obviously some poor judgment in, in hiring, and that is being extremely kind, it, I just heard that quote and I'm like, has he lost it? What is happening here? It's just gone. That's not a thing. And certainly not in this short a time period, unless they have, I don't know what they tried, voodoo, energy healing. None of these things are real. That's why I'm saying that. That's why I'm making fun of them. Maybe they tried ivermectin. Yeah, well, maybe. Here's the thing. I, I think we do often forget that a lot of pitchers have small tears in their UCL, right? I think the most prominent example that I can recall in the last few years is Masahiro Tanaka. People talked about that a lot. And it never broke, right? Right. It, it yeah. never really broke on him. So it doesn't mean the sky is falling every time you have a partial UCL tear. Now, mm -hmm. the DeGrom case, just thinking about his long-term effort to be a Hall of Famer, he, he already kind of started at a disadvantage being a guy that debuted in the big leagues at 26. So I realize like his his pitcher age versus his actual age, he could be the kind of guy that pitches until he's 40 if throwing mm -hmm. max effort the way he does doesn't break him before then and end up making up for it later and making himself a surefire Hall of Famer. But if if the if the late development successes for pitchers can be the best in the game or right at that level for several years, a perennial Cy Young candidate at peak, but then they burn out and have about a 10-year career, is that a profile that we're willing to one day put into Cooperstown? Well, we may have to, right? I mean, that's just, that. that is the conversation here. I don't have a good answer, right? Because anything that is that, this is, we're talking about a fairly dramatic shift. I have been on board with these evolutionary shifts and saying, okay, we need to look at different stats. We need to consider, uh, you know, that pitchers aren't pitching as much as they used to. If we're making a wholesale shift into a completely new paradigm of how we're evaluating these pitchers, that probably needs to happen. But I will also tell you, maybe it's just a reflection of my age, makes me want to say, hold it, hold on. Hold on a minute. Slow. We got to slow this down. That's too fast. We got to rethink this. But I, even though ultimately I can tell you, yeah, we probably do. Because a Hall of Fame without any starting pitchers going into it is not doing its job of reflecting the best players in baseball. No, it would uh, it would be awful, actually. So that's going to be one of the hardest things for people to kind of wrap their minds around. Because look, I, I'm a pretty regular person. I'm struggling to wrap my head around this and, and figuring out what this is is going to look like. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Have you been to Cooperstown before, Keith? Because I've never actually been. I went in... 1988, 87, no, something like that. Been a that. while. Yeah. And I'll be honest, that's enough. <laughs> it's fine. 
it's really in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing else there. You know, it's just, I do not have children who are super into baseball. You know, if you could drop me in Cooperstown, right? Like I could, I had a private jet at my disposal and could just get there. Sure. But yeah, that's not my thing. And you know, I've never, when I was a kid, I was more interested and I'm glad I went once, but I am not the a huge baseball history nerd. I'm much more interested in the baseball present and obviously the future since it's my job. But the stuff of this distant past, I completely understand why this is interesting to other people. It's never had the same kind of hold on me and that's fine. The Hall of Fame Museum, because it is a lot more than just the players, people who think you're just going to go see the plaques. There's way more there than just that. I'm just not part of its audience, and I think that's fine. Yeah, I've heard it takes really, if you're if you're really into the baseball history, at least like two days to really see everything, if that's the kind of yeah. thing that you want to do. Uh, I've never been. I think the thing that has made the area a little more appealing to me in recent years, I don't know if you're a big craft beer guy, but Omegong Brewing is actually in Cooperstown. It's one of the few other things oh, that happens to be there. And they make really good right, Belgian so there are two beers. Things. Yes, two things there. Are there are two things in there. So yes. if you like craft beer and baseball, and you don't mind long drives from you know, nearby airports, you could get it done. But uh, it's on my list. I, I don't know when I'm going to get out there. I don't, I don't want to go on an induction weekend normally. It's oh, midweek this no, no, year. No. Because it seems like as, as fun as that would be if you were a diehard fan of a player. I'm not, I'm not really a diehard fan of any players. I just like the game. I'd rather go when it's less crowded. As a small town, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily equipped to be overrun by thousands and thousands of visitors uh, all at once. So it's on the bucket list, but uh, probably not happening for the next couple of years. I would say everybody should go once. If you go more often than that, you are your interests in baseball diverge from mine. And that's okay. By the way, you mentioned earlier you had Sarah Langs on as your guest on the Keith Law Show this week because we're talking about... Uh, favorites for various awards and i'm with you the pitcher rookie of the year award should be a thing because it, it's so difficult for rookie pitchers to actually come away with that and i think we do uh, we do want to look for future stars we do want to look for maybe future cy young winners it's kind of a way to to honor those players and, and try and identify those players which to me is the most fun thing about looking at awards in the first place i find people love the awards conversations right they just love the awards conversations they can't get it, like they can't get enough of the hall of fame stuff and so you know, I am, and I find them interesting on kind of an academic level. I don't really care. You know, it's not affecting my paycheck, right? The players should be the ones who care the most. There's quite a, typically money riding on it for them. Um, and so Sarah and I were just kind of talking offline, sort of what should we talk about before we got together on the podcast and then just sort of settled on this as a topic because there were plenty of individual player seasons to talk about that made it kind of an interesting topic. And I was much more, um, because I don't, I don't vote. The, the I, I'm eligible to vote. The Baseball Writers Association always just finds a way for me to not vote. It's really, definitely a thing at this point. Um, they'll deny it too. It's absolutely hilarious. But this is what happens when the same people run the organization for a really long time. You know, that's why well, I got to got to protect the old boys club first. Okay. Um. Anyway, so it does mean I'm free to one say things like that. I think the organization's kind of a bit of a joke. And two, that uh, I can talk about all the awards at this point. And so we talked about the ones that we thought were pretty interesting, whether some of the players were interesting, some of the names were new or maybe unexpected, um, where there might be a race too. And that's, you know, and that I will say, obviously, Shohei Otani is probably just going to win AL MVP because he's the most interesting story among the candidates. 
But there are plenty of other guys having really MVP-worthy years who we should, you know, it's fair to at least talk about them and point, shine a light on them, even if realistically they're not going to win the contest that comes with the voting. Yeah, and a few of the awards that looked like they were locked up back in July have become opened up because of Agreed. injuries. Like the DeGrom injury has opened up the NL Cy Young, so that becomes a pretty fun argument as well. He's still really close to the top of the leaderboards, though. Kind of interesting. Like, How high can he finish while pitching basically half a season? You know, it's not Rookie of the Year where we talk about Wander Franco's Rookie of the Year case. If I had an AL Rookie of the Year vote, I would vote for him. But I could see people saying, he didn't play enough. I don't think that's really a consideration in that particular category. But in Cy Young category and the MVP category, I could certainly see that and say, well, it just wasn't, he was very good in his limited playing time, but did he actually play enough to be better than everybody else who's contending for the awards? You know, in DeGrom's case, he's not going to win, but I'd be very curious to see how high he finishes um, with being, he was elite, he was the best while he was still pitching. Yeah, the per inning, I mean, as good as anybody in the game right now, but just didn't get enough volume probably to finish higher than maybe third. I could see him maybe getting up to three, but I don't think he's yeah. getting any higher than that. Who would you vote for for NLSI? I'm putting you on the spot here. Corbin Burns. Yeah, that's who I would vote for. Wheeler's right there, too. And Woodruff's been yeah. great. I mean, you got two in Milwaukee that could easily Yeah, how about that, right? Yeah. Milwaukee, I don't know how deep the, you know, it'll end up being, right? Because with only five spots on the ballot, you get fewer, you have less diversity of names. But, you know, could you argue for three Brewers in the top 10? Be kind of amazing. I think you could. But yeah, Zach Wheeler's had a great season, too. And I, I don't know how. He's yeah. the other one. Do people, right? How many people outside my, of Philly care about Zach Wheeler? It's sad. Baseball reference, I think he's actually the leader. Yeah. Is he actually the leader in war? We were looking the other day. And now, of course, I've forgotten because it's like two whole days ago. But yeah, there's an argument that he's been the most valuable player on the Phillies, not Bryce Harper, who he's having an MVP caliber season. These are the things that are actually more interesting. When we actually get to the vote in November, of course I comment because it's the job, right? We're supposed to pay attention to these things, you know, but then it's like, then I go on living my life, right? There's no, it does not make a difference to me personally, professionally, financially, who actually wins. It does matter to these players though, quite a bit in many cases, um, and can affect not just their immediate compensation, but their future contracts too. And so that is a better reason to care. If you are somebody who essentially cares about players and players' rights, that's probably the better argument to get so worked up as opposed to guy wearing my team's laundry didn't win. Yeah, and I guess if you start boiling it down that way, the guys who haven't had the free agent payday yet kind of get the little extra bump in your mind. Burns is one of those guys. Wheeler at least has hit free agency and, and cashed in. So you know, that's kind of weighing in the back of your mind a little bit as well. Uh, be sure to check out that episode of the Keith Law Show, though. It's definitely a good one. You can find me on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast and on Rates and Barrels. We've got a good deal right now for subscribers to The Athletic. 50% off a subscription. It's the best deal that we put out there all year. You can get that at theathletic.com slash baseball show. If you are enjoying this podcast, take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review and tell a friend. You know, we've got a lot of stuff coming up here with the postseason just around the corner. And if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, we do have bonus episodes that pop up on The Athletic app from time to time. So you can get those by subscribing or you can subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. So be sure to check that out as well if you prefer to listen there. On Twitter, he's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend.